Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. So, as I understand, you and the team at the Museum of Tropical Queensland kind of just recently reopened after a renovation and an exhibit refresh. So talk us through that process. Yeah, so um, where we are, the Museum of Tropical Queensland is in Townsville in North Queensland. So um, that top sort of side of Australia, we're in the tropics up here and Two or three years ago, we had a really large monsoonal flood, um, a lot of Townsville completely flooded, and the roof of the museum actually um, hit as well. So we happened to um, um, manage to close while we were closed for COVID as well. So it was a bit fortuitous, actually, and do a lot of the renovations that were planned for a year or so ahead of time then. Um, what that also meant, though, is that the public didn't really comprehend that we would spend a lot of money fixing a roof, which they probably wouldn't have noticed the difference of anyway. Um, so the curators had to come up with um, refreshed exhibits that we have, and a lot of them had been in there for about um, anywhere from 20 to 10 years. So they certainly needed um, something refreshed, and we spent a lot of the last six months pulling that together for reopening. So it was a very busy process um, for construction and for curators as well. Awesome. And now you're able to be open to the public and um, yeah, what is it? What has the lockdown been like in Australia the, in the past? Because I mean, obviously we've been in it for a year and a half now, but like in the last three months, things have been kind of, you know, here in the US, we've had such a like rapid reopening. Have things been a bit slower there? Have they kind of always been somewhat open? Yeah, we're we're pretty lucky up here. Being in a regional city, we're not one of the capital cities of Australia, so we certainly have a lower population. That meant that we missed a lot of the big sort of COVID outbreaks. Um, the last three months have been really fantastic up here. Australia is actually just going through um, a bit of a rise in COVID cases and lockdown in the southern states. So we're open at the moment um, and people can come in and visit. And we actually just finished two weeks of wearing face masks. So everyone's really happy to um, be free of face masks for yeah. the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Yeah, well, hopefully it stays that way. I, def- I know yeah. we're definitely enjoying some newfound freedoms <laughs> and entertainment. <laughs> What was, I feel like for me, the biggest thing was, um, oh, the plane was the plane. I was like, what? I mean, I used to fly so often, so often because I have divorced parents. So I'd fly, you know, just really often and going on the plane into New York in um, June, I was like, I don't know if I can ever sit in an aisle seat again. I felt like everyone was in my business. I felt like everyone was in my bubble. I was like, um, window seat for me from now on. (laughs) Yeah. yeah and do you have um the forced face mask on planes as well for the entire yes yeah that's mm-hmm. I've possibly found that the worst bit about starting to fly again you feel really sort of yeah like crowded by people but also crowded and stuffy sitting with a mm-hmm. face 
time. Well, and especially for you guys in Australia, you have to fly like 12 hours to go anywhere. (laughs) I don't know the exact hours, but I went on my first field school in Spain. They were the couple Australian students were talking about they're like to go anywhere. We have to go on a five or six hour plane ride like to to go anywhere. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big trip and it's expensive. Hey, so I have um, European friends and they often say it is cheaper to fly back to Europe pre-COVID, of course, than it was to get to the other side of Australia. So um, it certainly makes it difficult. to. As we were kind of discussing, um, you are a senior curator in maritime archaeology at the Museum of Tropical Queensland, um, which, you know, is really amazing. You accomplished that after receiving your PhD in the subject of maritime archaeology. So I'm really curious what um um, what inspired you to pursue a doctorate in this particular field of archaeology and maybe you know maybe we can start that with what initially got you inspired but I also think taking the step to pursue a doctorate clearly shows a even more dedicated level of passion and uh real love for the subject so yeah just go through that process with us yeah that's a really good um a good way to start thinking about that I guess um Like a lot of people, I kind of entered a PhD after, so I did a Bachelor of Archaeology here and then I moved into a Master's of Maritime Archaeology and then managed to get a job at the West Australian Museum as an assistant curator for a couple of years. Um, And working over there wasn't, I guess you wouldn't call it your typical curator role, there wasn't a lot of focus on exhibits or um, an outward facing look it certainly was a department that focused heavily on research and field work and studies so much more I guess um, an academic focus that one was they um, were a partner with the local university in Perth there to get um, a big research project called shipwrecks of the roaring 40s and that really looked at the last I guess 40 to 50 years of shipwreck research and archaeology in Western Australia and they looked at new questions and how you could maybe ask the same questions they asked 40 years ago but we now have the technology to answer some of those so I was really intrigued by using new ways of visualizing sites to bring it to the public I I had a lot of friends and family members who can't dive they have asthma or things like that so for them visiting one of these shipwreck sites was always out of the question and I thought about ways of bringing that to them in a digital form and I guess that drove um some of my reason for doing a PhD. Um, Less inspiring perhaps is the fact that um, in our careers now we kind of have to progress towards a PhD. (laughs) So um, I can't blame it all really wanting to be inspired by something. There's certainly a push um, in the job market for like I could not have this senior curator role without having a PhD for example. So um, there's a bit of practicality there as well on that side of it. How many years years have you been at the museum now? I have been here since April 2019, so just over two years now. Previously, um, I was in Melbourne, in Victoria, in um, down south for about six or seven months working for the state as a maritime archaeologist there, um, and I was in Western Australia before that. So I have moved around the country a fair bit. But I guess let's clarify for our listeners, you were, you have lived your whole life in Australia, correct? You were born there? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Australian born. Yep. I've lived here my whole life and worked here my whole life. Yeah. (laughs) That's a pretty cool thing to say. 
I am really interested in, so I grew up with a father who was a scuba diver and now my stepmom mm-hmm. is like, was a master diver in Thailand and taught other people. So scuba diving is definitely something that I'm very well versed in and I kind of understand like maritime archaeology, but maybe we should do a little breakdown for our listeners that may not be as yeah. familiar. I'm sure there's probably kind of some like common misconceptions that, you know, people have about your job. Maybe let's just take the time to kind of outline like what the, what the, the out the bare minimum the definition of maritime archaeology is and then we'll dive into like all the details about what tools you use how you excavate you know everything like that yeah perfect okay so um a really basic definition of maritime archaeology then is that it's a discipline that studies uh human past of interacting with the water in some way so um, for me particularly I focus on the ocean and ships and shipwrecks and um, sailing vessels like that but you can certainly have maritime archaeologists that work on rivers and lakes or um, coastal landscapes um, everything from lighthouses to harbours and ports so it it can be quite a broad topic and it's certainly getting broader Um, yeah me particularly though I do like to stick with um, shipwrecks which sort of meant that um, and probably what was one of my driving things is that I had to dive to do um, part of my work and my research so that was definitely one of the things being a maritime archaeologist yeah. When did you start scuba diving? I actually started really early. I think I um I did my first dive when I was like 14 years old. I actually came over here to Queensland to visit my um my aunt and uncle here and they took me out to the Great Barrier Reef and I did a little intro dive and I was hooked on it since then. Um <laughs> I went back home and um for Christmas my present was getting my scuba certificate at about 15, I think. So I've been diving for quite a while. <laughs> Have you had the opportunity to dive anywhere other than Australia? Yeah, I've done some um, diving um, in sort of West Papua in Indonesia, just north of us. And I've also done some, um, a little bit of diving in Oman um, during some field work over there. So, but certainly most of it has been around our coast here, Western Australia, and now up here in, um, on the Great Barrier Reef. That's oh, amazing. I <laughs> really hope to have the chance to visit the Great Barrier Reef, especially given everything that's going on with, you know, the coral just dying. And I'm yeah. really curious to hear, well, first of all, I guess if anyone is not up to date on like the situation with the coral reefs, a really good thing that kind of got me um, learning more about was the documentary Chasing Coral on Netflix. I think that's kind of mm-hmm. a good intro. Um, but, you know, you've been diving for so long in, you know, in Australia, have you been able to like, see those changes in the coral reefs? Hmm. Yeah, I guess I couldn't really, um, I couldn't really speak for the Great Barrier Reef. I feel like two years um, is not really enough time to know it. And I'm always, um, my attention probably isn't always on the coral. Um, yeah. <laughs> looking at the fish or if it's a mm-hmm. wreck site. Um, in, in Western Australia, working up in the Abrolhos um, Islands, which is in sort of the middle of Western Australia, it's about uh, 60 kilometres off the coast there, really renowned sort of coral islands. Um, I do did notice sort of changes bleaching and dying off of corals, but at the same time you would move to another area and notice a really healthy um, ecosystem as well. So without being someone who knows a lot about it, um, about that, I certainly saw some changes and differences. Mm-hmm. 
possibly more so um, from growing up along the coast and and um, I used to do a lot of fishing, still do a lot of fishing from the beach and from boats. Um, and I've certainly noticed possibly the biggest change is a real drastic change in the population of fish um, along, you know, our, our sort of what you'd like to think of your safe um, protected sort of harbours and beaches and things like that really has changed. And that's possibly the most stark thing for me in the last 15 years. Yeah. I think for me, the coral is one that just like breaks my heart. I love the ocean so much. I should, you know, I, I grew up on the coast. I still live on the coast and I'm definitely, you're the shipwreck mermaid, but my parents have always <laughs> called me a mermaid from when I was little. I certainly see um, a lot of maybe um, for us, what flies under the radar is big scale commercial fishing um, oh. and people's demand perhaps for seafood without really knowing the impacts of it um, along the coastline. And they're really so far removed from the whole process that they don't think about and the impact that might have long term. Yeah. Um, so this is switching gears completely, yeah. but um, was your goal always to pursue a job in museums? Did you think of other applications of maritime archaeology, perhaps? Mm-hmm. The, I don't know, because this is a newer, you know, subfield of archaeology to me, but maybe that's where most of the jobs are in, you know, maritime archaeology yeah. and museums. Yeah, I actually, um, I actually wanted to be a maritime, uh, a marine biologist, I should say, um, growing up as a kid, because I, I did live near the coast, I spent every sort of holiday and weekends um, swimming down the beach. Um, at the same time, though, I had a real love for history and reading books. And um, my, my granddad in particular told me many stories about um, shipwrecks and those like nautical tales that um, everyone loves to sort of repeat. Um, so I then figured out that I could put those two together and I could still work underwater and dive, but I could do the history side and really investigate that. Um, there aren't a huge amount of jobs, I would say, um, purely being a maritime archaeologist. So yes, a lot of it is in museums. A lot of it is teaching in universities and academia. Um, we also have quite a good consulting arm of maritime archaeology here um, and particularly our state and Commonwealth. So our Australia-wide legislation that protects shipwrecks helps um, that sort of cultural heritage management aspect of mm. anything under as well um museums sort of always interested me because they have or generally have those huge collections that um uh, are quite young in terms of museum worlds I guess they were collected in sort of the 50s 60s 70s and onwards um, and collected by archaeologists so often a lot of really good information goes with them and I loved the thought of studying those and working on those creating exhibitions for people that really inspires them but um, primarily it's always been about the the shipwreck stories and the research you can get from them so um, I think that's what I always wanted to do and I just sort of fell into museum curation as part of that. Yeah so you're you know as you've been saying your research focuses on shipwrecks but something that I think that's really cool is you're using that history that historical accounts documents like um, I'm sure there's probably maybe like books but you're also using these new technologies like 3D imaging and other like uh, you know, technologies to really enhance what we can learn from shipwrecks. So kind of how, what are, what are those two components of your work? Are there other key tools? You know, how do those two like fit together? The real contrast of like history versus like brand new technology that you, like you said, can answer some of those questions that had been asked before. 
Yeah, that's really, um, that's a cool way to look at it. So I often think of what I do as um, being kind of like a cold case detective. So kind of like historical archaeology in a way, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but a lot of that begins with desktop search mm -hmm. newspapers and archives um, for ships you certainly have um, different ways you can go through like Lloyd's shipping register has a lot of information ships logs and things like that so that begins to give you um, as much of a reliable background as that sort of archival research can and if you're searching for a wreck for example the logs and the newspaper reports will narrow down some of that area once you step away from that and then you're starting to look for the site that's when um, things become a bit different for us because um, we've typically had to adapt how normal archaeologists work purely for a different environment. So that whole working underwater aspect, um, I know we go on about it a lot as underwater archaeologists, but when you go from working on land and, um, and you're limited on a site perhaps by daylight or if it's raining or windy, um, to then looking at a shipwreck like um, HMS Pandora, for example, which is um, a British naval shipwreck up in the Torres Strait in far northern Australia, that sits at 30 metres of water, um, deep enough that you as an archaeologist would be lucky to get two dives a day and they'd be limited to something like um, between 20 to 40 minutes um, yeah. each on a site. So you're really limited with the time that you can be on a site doing your work, which means that any tools and technology that help you get a job done quicker or help you just get as much information as possible in a short time really um, become priorities for us as underwater archaeologists. Time is really essential for us. Yeah. So it's 100 feet, by the way. 100 feet. Okay, good. And then, um, so I'm curious, I actually know why, but why is it that at depths like that, you can't stay down for longer than 20 to 40 minutes? Good. I forget that um, not many people know diving. <laughs> so, um, so the human bodies aren't really made to be underwater for a long time. Um, the deeper you go, the more pressure, so increased pressure you put on your body. Um, there's whole sorts of physiological processes there. Um, gases, so particles or um, atoms of gas shrink really small in your body. Um, and if you descend too quickly, they can expand and you can get everything from the bends, decompression sickness. Um, um, at depths, you can have something called nitrogen narcosis and everyone acts slightly differently, but um, essentially um, you can start tripping underwater mm. and actually, um um, sort of unaware of what you're actually doing um, so we're sort of limited in in terms of things like that um, I'm not entirely sure of their exact specifics but for example at about uh, 40 meters down your lungs go from their normal size to about the size of an orange so our, our bodies undergo a lot of um, sort of strain at the pressures that they're at um, and to be able to repetitively dive you have to have time up on the surface where you let those um, gases sort of um, expand safely and leave from you and you sort of reset your system so you can go again um, as brief terms as it is I've probably gotten that wrong for some real um, hardcore divers out there that are listening um, but enough to just know that we're limited physiologically by being underwater yeah yeah, I think it's an important thing to point out because, you know, it's, it can be easy to think, oh, or, you know, I go swimming, I can just dive down as far, whatever. And no, you really can't. Like, you're very, very limited. Yeah, um, yeah. 
something you brought up was when you're searching for shipwrecks. So my yeah. question is, how often um, are you brought in for your research? Or like you were saying, you were working with the state. I'm assuming that was part of that, like cultural heritage. Yes. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are they just like, oh, we found this shipwreck and we need info on it? Or is it more of the time where you're like, oh, we're looking for this one shipwreck that we know, you know, went oh, down yeah. in this kind of location? Yeah, cool. So um, being a state maritime archaeologist um, in Australia often means that you are managing a lot of shipwreck sites um, in the Great Barrier Reef, for example, in Queensland, there are over um, over 900 and something known wreck sites. Um, that's both ships and aircraft. Um, we don't, certainly haven't found all of those. And often a lot of, um, I would say the, the major amount of sites that we find are reported by people like recreational divers or fishermen that um, happen to be diving on a site and notice something and fill out a report. So um, purely because they're the people that are out there the, the most on those sites, that's how we find them. Um, apart from that, yeah, we you can be actively enrolled in searching for a rec site that's um, often sort of left for bigger research projects and it can be like finding a needle in a haystack. So um, sometimes you're down to luck for having sites found and reported mm. and you investigate what that shipwreck actually was. Yeah, that's really mm. interesting. Um, what yeah. current, what are you currently working on any uh, shipwreck projects? Yeah, so I'm really fascinated now. Um, I always love the stories of the big sites, you know, like the famous shipwrecks. Um, for us here in Queensland, that's HMS Pandora and SS Yongala, which is kind of like Australia's Titanic that sits just mm -hmm. up here and is a really popular dive site. But my focus now looks to the other shipwreck sites that we know of or we haven't found yet um, that are unidentified. So they've been reported sometime in the last 30 or 40 years, but they're not really big enough to draw anyone's attention. Um, no one's really worked on them, but they're certainly fascinating sites. So I, um, I like looking at them as mystery shipwrecks and really studying what those sites look like on a reef, how they've um, broken apart over time, what's left there and what sort of clues you can pull from that site to hopefully link to those newspaper reports and the logs and piece together bit by bit um, the identity of those shipwrecks. That's so fascinating. Do you ever find human remains? Um, we have found human remains on Pandora. Um, that is because um, Pandora is a rare shipwreck for the Great Barrier Reef. It actually hit the reef, um, was refloated and then sunk behind a coral um, bommy um, into some sand and then sunk into the sand and protected it. A lot of the other wrecks on the reef sit across the top and um, there's not a lot left because they're constantly hit by swell and storms. Um, so yes, there were um, three individuals found on Pandora in the 80s and 90s and they were buried really deep. So um, at a, you know, I think it's beyond something like 30 to 40 centimetres of sand, um, you lack oxygen and the bacteria that would normally break down organic materials. So things like human remains, um, laces, ropes, uh, leathers um, preserve really well. So occasionally, yes, but certainly not for um, most of the wrecks that we would find here. That's awesome. That's my specialization in school and what I'm you know, going to pursue for graduate school is forensic anthropology. So Amazing. I always have to ask about, you know, the human remains. 
Um, are there any common misconceptions about your work that you'd like to kind of dispel oh, while you're on here? Gosh, do I ever? Um, <laughs> look, the big one, and if um, if people follow a lot of what I do, um, I'm quite outspoken about this. It's sort of the differences between um, maritime archaeology and maritime archaeologists and people who call themselves shipwreck researchers um, or salvages um, or treasure hunters. So there's a big difference, and I think it's the same for any archaeology, really. There's a difference between searching a site particularly for the things to make you money or the things that people think are interesting because they are made of silver or gold or they're mm -hmm. um, in inverted commas, as opposed to actually researching a site to find out more information than that um, and a lot of people don't understand that you know for any site we work on as soon as you start digging into it and excavating it you're essentially destroying it you can never replicate that site so you have to be really really conscious um, archaeologists and meticulous recorders because we have to be um, there might be something in the future a technology that allows us to analyze something we recorded 30 years ago but didn't think we'd ever be able to do anything with it um, so, yeah, so I really like to reinforce the idea that archaeologists aren't treasure hunters. Um, I find bits of wood and leather shoes um, more interesting than gold or silver coins on a wreck site. They can only tell you so much. I can definitely understand that. And, you know, <laughs> it's the same thing, like looting on land, like it's such it can be such an issue. And I would say that, you know, if you ever were to come across like a shipwreck, like report it. Yeah. <laughs> do that yeah yeah yep definitely and I think um I think the thing that gets over sort of looked is that reporting a shipwreck is a fantastic thing and um, maritime archaeologists make a priority of being involved with the people who reported the shipwreck you'll often get invited to come out and work with us on the site or you know you get your name down in the books and history as being the person who Re relocated that site and found it so it's it's a great thing to work with us I think you can learn more about it if you report it as well I like to hear that yeah. <laughs> so I'm really curious to kind of hear the stages of an excavation because I'm so familiar with what it is like on land and actually the field school that I went to had like a an a underwater archaeology field school too so I know like a oh. tiny bit about like the the steps of um you know excavating a shipwreck but like you know, you go, you start, you have your team, like maybe let's start with like, who are the essential members of the team that you're bringing? Oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. Um, essential members for maritime archaeological excavation. Um, look, you always need obviously your, your team leader and the person who's in charge of the field work. And they'll make that final decision based on their research about what exactly you're going to do. Um, for a lot of shipwrecks, um, in Australia in particular, we don't practice excavation of a complete site um, anymore. We really like, um, well, for one reason, it's logistics and um, the time you would have to spend to excavate a complete shipwreck site is just huge. But second, we always love leaving something for future generations. Um, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, once you start uncovering things um, underwater in particular, once you disturb a site, um, getting it back to that equilibrium is almost impossible. It kind of creates this continuous movement of sand. So we like to do what I guess you would call strip excavations or 
um, focused excavations of certain areas that you really want to know about or you have questions about. So, for example, that might be towards the stern of a ship where um, the officers or the captain had his space. So you'd want to know more about them or you could excavate where you think, you know, um, the keel and the frame and the mast sort of set up is if you're interested in how the ship was built and things like that. So we focus them on that. Um, apart from your archaeological director, I'll always have um, a conservator along on a field, um, field trip. For us, that's essential. Um, I know the basics um, for maritime archaeologists. If it's wet, you keep it wet. Um, that's about it. Um, you, you often you'll bring up things and a conservator is the person who knows exactly how to treat them, whether they're copper alloys or they're iron and ferrous or they're organics. It's really essential long-term preservation for us to have a conservator there in the field working on them. For the rest of it, your, your dive team are your archaeologists. So you, um, you want to make sure you've got a really good team um, that know what they're doing, working underwater, excavate underwater know how to continually interpret a site underwater. It can be um, pretty tricky to get a big picture of a shipwreck when you're focused on a one metre square grid, for example. So um, that's really important. What else am I forgetting? Um, apart from the recording, I, I like to nowadays um, invite an underwater filmographer or a photographer out with us. Um, archaeologists uh, often, uh, not always good at underwater photography, but we're always so focused on the research and photographing the wreck that we don't actually think about photographing what we're doing or um, filming the process and um, excavations don't happen all that often here in Australia. So having that um, really lovely sort of outreach side for exhibitions or for um, lectures or for books, it's great to have someone who's a professional um, film person underwater that can capture that work um, you know it's sort of it's exciting work it's um, fantastic to see us work underwater there's you know there's dredges and bubbles and people everywhere and tools so um, it can look really good as well I think that's about it really you want most of your team to be archaeologists for sure mm -hmm. and you uh, are doing some of that diving excavating still yourself you're not you know not on the boat like 24 7 I assume oh, yeah, you're I guess I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. So, um, so yeah, you definitely, I think most of the time if you excavate, you certainly want to be based um, on the site with the boat. Um, because you're limited with time, everyone would be swapping and have separate dive teams. So, um, for example, you may have two to four people down doing the work and the other people are up the top monitoring being standby divers and safe a big role there so I guess you always want a dive supervisor and a dive coordinator um, but then your other team will be finishing their notebooks and their journals and prepping for their next dive and swapping so yeah definitely in the water. And then what are some of the key tools you're using for um, like making notes underwater bringing um, objects up to the surface and yeah. I guess even like what uh, what's the conservator putting the objects in to you know yeah. for, to help yeah. preserve them? Yeah, okay. So um, to start off very basically, um, I don't own a trowel. I don't know any maritime archaeologists that own a trowel or a shovel. Um, we never use them. So um, it's really funny. I always see these great giveaways by other archaeologists on social media. They're like, I'm giving away trowels. I'm like, oh, I'll never use that. Um, 
<laughs> so we actually use to dig, um, we call it an air dredge. It's essentially a big sort of flexible pipe. Um, you pump water through it at a really low speed. So it just very um, has a gentle sort of suction. Um, and essentially within your one square meter or whatever space you're excavating, you sit and you very carefully use your hand to fan into this um, dredge and that's then pumped away to um, a place nearby the site where another archaeologist is literally sitting there to see if you've accidentally um, put anything into the um, the pile there um, and it's, it often doesn't happen because we're quite slow at what we do um, so it is a really delicate way of excavating, I would say. You don't have any tools that you're digging um, into the sediment as you go. It's very sort of um, removed and lovely like that. Um, to record underwater, we, um, we use drawing boards and paper. We call it a mylar paper, but it's kind of like, um, I guess the equivalent for most people would be like baking paper or butcher's paper. Um, mm. It's sort of, it's waterproof and we just use pencils on that. So um, you will often have um, your plan for the dive written onto that. You will have on the other side um, descriptions for any objects that you raise or what you're recording um, on there, um, which people are often really surprised about, just regular pencils, hey, and waterproof paper is what we use. Um, without looking at underwater photography for recording there. Um, to lift objects from the floor, um, we use things called um, airlifts or airbags. They kind of look like, um, I guess you would, if you see them, they look like hot air balloons, but a really small version. Um, and you can attach large objects um, like cannon and anchors. You can lift with them. Um, it takes a certain skill because they, um, you know, as we said at the start, um, oxygen expands as it goes up. So you can hit a point where they'll just shoot to the surface. Um, and often if you're lucky, you've got your, um, the big work boat that you're all based on right near the site and you can just use a pulley system to lift um, specially packed crates of objects up to the surface to that conservator. Um, once they're up the top, the conservator will pull them out. Um, they go through a recording process. So you'll have a collection manager there who's um, giving them a registration number and putting them in the database and photographing them over to the conservator who then packs them um, on board the boat to get them home. So whether that's in... Um, um, or plastic um, or some sort of thing um, will depend on the object, but they're all kept wet. So there'll be tubs and tubs with water that the objects are all packed specially into. That must make transport of them to the, well, I guess they're not always going to the museum, but kind of difficult. You've got a truck full of sloshing buckets of water. Oh, yeah, it can be really difficult and heavy. Like that makes yeah. everything heavy um I guess if we're really you know if you're close by somewhere um you can empty a lot of the water out as long as they stay mm -hmm. dead and they don't dry out they can get back to um yeah to the lab here at the museum um to work on them super interesting um I am curious having you know grown up in Australia I want to know what your best advice for someone who's maybe going to Australia to do like field work or work is and then the advice you'd give to someone that's just there for like vacation traveling enjoying because <laughs> I feel like so often we hear the like scary like avoid the spiders and I'm like no we just oh. talk about the good you know the tips that are like actually would help someone you know 
have a good have the local vacation <laughs> cool all right okay well I'll start with the field work and um and the hands-on experience um most states in Australia have a museum. Um, for example, our museum here, um, it is the state collection for shipwreck materials. So um, there's about ooh, maybe 8,000 objects here that are from shipwrecks. Um, I would say that some of most of those have not been ever studied or looked at um, beyond their basic cataloging and accessioning into the collection. So there's always research and work to be done hands-on in a museum and really often we um we have programs for volunteers and we love having people come in to learn um that's how I started I volunteered at the museum in Perth and I got to get some hands-on sort of um, numbering and photography and an understanding of collections so there's always that um, in terms of field work it's sort of um it can be limited in terms of having volunteers um, Work health and safety over here is pretty um, full on with allowing um, like non-scientific or non-professional divers um, onto some field work. But we certainly do a range of field work. So there are boats that are excavated on the beach. There's work done on harbours and slipways and um, there's maritime archaeology that doesn't involve that diving aspect. Um, for students, though, you can certainly come along to some of the field schools that are run by universities. And if there's a maritime archaeological focus, um, that will have diving and you hopefully work with other professionals, not just teachers there on a site that actually is a real thing that you're contributing some real information to. Um, so that's pretty much that one. Um, in terms of anyone coming to Australia and some good tips for what to do, um, Look, I mean, growing up in Australia, maybe you just have a healthy understanding of the environment, but it's certainly not scary. Um, I could recommend travelling anywhere um, in the north from Darwin and the Northern Territory to um, Cairns and Townsville if you really love rainforests and you want that sort of outback um, experience as well and the reef it's just it's beautiful up here I know we're hungry for people to come back to visit Australia when borders open again um, and it's it's going to be brilliant look at the south coast gets um written off a lot as well so we have this wonderful you know our country is so big that we have everything from the tropics in the north down to snow in the south and and big forests and old forests and um the surf is incredible so of course um we love our beaches but um yeah I'm not sure if that's enough tips or convincing it is people. I mean I just learned two new things I didn't know Australia got snow or had rainforests <laughs> And I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't know either of those things, just because I have a general good sense of geography. I've, but I mean, wow, yeah. yeah, crazy, cool. Yeah, a lot of people focus on the coast, I think, and the beaches. Yeah. So um, they call like the northern Queensland where the rainforest meets the ocean. Um, quite literally, you'll get up to the beach and it's it's rainforest. Um, yeah, and down south we have like a winter skiing season um, around sort of Threadbow, New South Wales and Victoria. Um I wouldn't say it's huge. It's nothing yeah. like Europe, um, but certainly, yeah, there's there's ski towns there as well. Yeah, awesome. Do you ski? <laughs> I have a I have a couple of times. Hey, but growing up in Western Australia, it doesn't snow over there, so like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was water you, for me or nothing. <laughs> do you have a favorite land 
creature and you have a favorite ocean creature or perhaps Mm. like fun interacting stories with them because I know here like I love the dolphins I just like here especially in Santa Barbara we have oh so many dolphins just right off the coast and I mean I've had opportunities to kayak near them or just see them and every single time it's so magical yeah okay so my favorite land animal um of course is an Australian one is the wombats um which are like I don't know quite how to describe them they're like a tiny short little um nocturnal marsupial they're really cute I don't know like a fairy teddy bear cross a pig on the ground um they have really terrible eyesight so they look like they squint a lot if they're out in the daylight really gorgeous they burrow so um they're my favorite sort of land animal yeah they live in little um holes and they come out in the evenings and nighttime to eat um my favorite sort of interactions with ocean creatures um would have to be the Australian I think they're sea lions um over on the west coast when we were off working in the Abrolis um we'd often get some young sea lions come up and be really curious and if you get in the water quick enough um with your gear you can play with them so you can do like loop-de-loops and they'll copy you with doing a loop-de-loop and they'll like jump up when you jump up so um, I love that that's pretty rare um some of the coolest over here actually are the sea snakes um which sounds really crazy but so gala the wreck off here there's these um really huge sea snakes that have no problems with coming right up to you and like swimming around your legs and hanging around you so they're really like I think it's purely the fact that they're not scared of you that um Mm -hmm. is fascinating they sort of just yeah treat you like you're one of them yeah (laughs) I saw uh, some nature documentary of sea snakes in Indonesia and just like a swarm of these sea snakes just going and I'm like they just don't look like they're supposed to be there because eels like the way eels move in water is just so different from the way that I was seeing these sea snakes in that like an eel you're like yeah you belong here like I get your body kind of moves like in the water and something about the sea snakes is just they just don't look like that evolutionarily they belong there they're just yeah they look like they should be on land for sure yeah Yeah. I'm just how are you breathing how are you down here just living (laughs) but it's it's cool that you you know get you have that they're they're not afraid of people um are there Mm. are there like specific animals that you feel like tend to live in shipwrecks a lot oh um yeah, maybe. Well, it depends what sort of wreck. So if it's one of the steel um, hulls that there's a lot left of it, um, they often create artificial reefs. So that'll draw big fish there that live around there. Um, I've seen everything from turtles sleeping on shipwrecks here to snakes to rays. Um, we have big fish um, called gropers like that get absolutely massive um, and they like hang around those big structures. Um, my favorite ones though that really you find on the smaller wreck sites so the wooden ones where there's not a lot left on the surface um, but there's often little hidey holes and nooks and crannies um, uh, there's always an octopus a resident I was gonna ask I watched my Um, octopus teacher last night yeah they're great they have their little like um like discard bits of shell and crabs around them and they'll always live in the same spot so you can be guaranteed that a wreck will have a nice little oki living on it yeah (laughs) that's awesome yeah um what is your favorite part about working in the museum is there maybe a favorite exhibit 
uh, that maybe even you're working on? Yeah, I think I love, um, look, I obviously do a lot of work in the collection store and I love um, maybe uncovering objects that um, have been boxed and stored away for years and years and no one's looked at them. I really love um, opening those out again, even if it's just simply for an audit to make sure they are where we think they are um it's fascinating to see some things often um you know our knowledge has grown and what they're originally labeled as um isn't right anymore it was miscorrectly identified so sometimes you can find some really fascinating things um apart from that like I'm biased I always love the shipwreck um exhibits (laughs) in any museum as rare as they are um but I like to see now how our museums are changing um I like to see how We've gone away from excessive amounts of, you know, writing on walls and text and we're becoming a bit more interactive. Um, Technology's helped us have everything from touch screens to motion detected aspects. Um, And I like that that's hand in hand with the real classic thing of still a lot of what draws people to an exhibition is the real objects. And I don't think we'll ever get away from that. I think that there's something to be said for being able to see all these movies and sounds and technology to go along with an exhibit. But as long as you complement it with the objects still, people really are always fascinated with seeing the real thing. Is there like a everyone's favorite item? Well, like the, I should, let, me, let me rephrase yeah. that. Is there, a, is there a public favorite item in the museum? Yes, I'd say there's, um, yeah, look, there's two that are from um, my collection that I know of. We have a really, really old um, diving helmet in our collection on display. So um, I think it's like from around the 1840s. Um, it's an Augusta CB helmet. It's one of the few left in the world, that classic like bubble diver um, head. Everyone, Yeah, like the of- one behind you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm looking at one where I'm like, one. is it that one? <laughs> yeah. No, that's, um, that's, I'm holding that for some other people. That's not a, a real one, but it looks a lot like that. Um, and then I think um, maybe the other one, we call it an iconic in the collection, is um, a beautiful silver pocket watch from Pandora. It was the surgeon's pocket watch um, that he had on him and it um, came up, it was completely black from excavation and it took years of conservation Um, and now it sits in a display open and you can see um, it's got an inscription on it, like a beautiful, delicate, tiny clock. It's just um, gorgeous. So people are fascinated by the delicate, tiny things and then they also love the really giant things like the cannon and the helmets as well. I can understand that. We used to have one of those yeah. helmets at my um, local aquarium growing up. And so we, you'd like walk up the ladder and there's like ten, probably hundreds of pictures of me standing like at different ages, smiling in the old diver's helmet. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So we've reached the end of the interview, but I want to give you the opportunity <gasps> to um, touch on anything or bring up anything that, you know, we didn't get to in the interview any questions you have for me and feel free to take a couple seconds to think about that one (laughs) yeah no I think we covered a lot of it really well I guess I would just say that um the work that uh you know we do on modern platforms now like social media platforms there are 
archaeologists, there's anthropologists, we're all out there. Um, we're all really friendly. So, you know, if, if you're considering a career or you're a high school student that's sort of thinking about doing archaeology, please don't be afraid to reach out and ask us some questions. Um, you know, we, we have networks all around the world and we can, if we can't answer or give you advice, we can often point you in the way of someone who does. So yeah, don't be afraid to reach out to us. Definitely. I think that's a great last point to hit on. And um, also, I just want to commend you because I think right around the time I reached out to you to record for this, you got this article written about you where they called you the Indiana Jones of the deep. And I'm still, we have to start that as a hashtag because that was just too great. I read that and I like told my mom, I was like, oh my gosh, this is too funny. Especially because I feel like of all archaeology, you're doing like the closest to what Indiana Jones like does almost in that like, yeah, because digging. Also, the other thing I wanted to bring up is that are you ever interested in, in going to a land archaeology site? Like imagine how crazy oh. different that would be for you. We'd like Look, hand I, you a trowel and you'd be like, uh. I, I wouldn't know what to do probably. Hey, um, I'd kind of be useless. I've Look, I've done a few... Um, land excavations but they were still shipwrecks so I don't know if yeah. that really like <laughs> you can't really compare it to that but yeah I'd probably get really hot and sweaty and I'd be really grumpy <laughs> we all get hot and sweaty and really grumpy <laughs> um something that I've learned like recently because we're doing some uh, field work here is sunshades like make all the difference if you want your crew to be happy and mm-hmm. focused and motivated like put up some sunshades. Your team will do so much better work. Yeah. So that's my like big thing for archaeology moving forward is that like comfort, even like the bare minimum level of comfort, like a sunshade, like it's still hot. It's just, so you're not getting sunburnt that, you know, that comfort really just people produce better work when they're comfortable. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) 